Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17, starting in, I will start back at the beginning of the chapter, uh, but our text is actually verses 9 through 13, but I just want to remind you of uh, the context. This is God's word. It has everything that you and I need for life and godliness. Give it your reverent uh, and careful attention. Matthew 17. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish... I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And with the disciple, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Amen. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Pray with me. O Lord, we do thank you for your enduring word. We thank you that it endures because it is your word. Because they are the words of the living God. And we thank you that we have access to this wonderful word. And we thank you that you continue to speak through it, as it is read and indeed as it is preached. Would you please speak to us uh, afresh through your word? Would you please use it to profit our walk with you? And would you please use it to glorify yourself, or uh, better said, reflect your glory back to you. Uh, 
through what you hear and see and our response. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, um, Pastor Mark, in case you kids haven't already picked up on this, sometimes Pastor Mark doesn't always listen as well as he should. And uh, sometimes that's reflected in things. I, I have a tendency to think about something um, or have my mind distracted and somebody can say something to me. Perhaps one of you children have done this. And I, didn't re- I may have looked at you, but I didn't really hear quite what you said. And so then, uh, if you told me something, I might forget it or not really fully have understood what you said to me later if you come back and say, but Pastor Mark, I told you this. And I might give you a look like, you'd, okay, okay, I guess I sort of remember that. Perhaps you've had something like this happen um, Maybe even this past week. You know, this past week was a busy week for a lot of us. We were uh, celebrating, most of us were celebrating Thanksgiving uh, with family. And perhaps you had a lot of things going on this week, this past week. And maybe at the beginning of the week, one of your parents or both your parents said to you, now, this is going to be a busy week. Here's how it's going to go. Uh, first, we're, uh, we're going to be going we're gonna go shopping and get uh, food, and then we're going to go and we're going to cook our own Thanksgiving meal, and this so-and-so's coming over after we cook, and then we're going to go to so-and-so's house, and, and then after that, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and if, you, if that didn't happen this week, I'm sure that conversation, something like that, has happened on another occasion, where you have been told how things are going to go and what's going to happen when. But then afterwards, after the conversation, you thought... I'm not sure I remember exactly how that was all going to go. And you have to go back and ask your mom or your dad, when is it we're going here, and when are we leaving, and then where are we going again? I know you told me, but I really can't, I'm a little confused. I bring this up to you and point this out, because the disciples of Jesus had occasions when they were kind of confused. Um, and this is one of those occasions. There were only three disciples here uh, that, uh, that were at the Mount of Transfiguration and that came down the mountain after Jesus had been transfigured, after his, his partial glory had been unveiled, or there had been a partial unveiling of his glory. Um, but these three disciples exhibit some real confusion about how things are supposed to go with respect to events uh, that are talked about in the Old Testament and had to do with the Messiah, who is Jesus. And so this passage is, um, is about their confusion and Jesus clearing up their confusion. In fact, those are essentially the two points of my sermon today. And there are some things that apply to you and me uh, that we can learn from this text. And you'll hear those as well. But you need to pay attention so that you can benefit uh, from God's word as I unpack it for you here. Peter, James, and John, uh, as we read a moment ago, have just witnessed Jesus' transfiguration on whatever mountain it was. We don't know exactly which mountain. There are a few good guesses, uh, a couple of good guesses, but we don't know. Anyway, Jesus had been transfigured there. It was a momentary 
and partial unmasking, if you will, of the glory that he as the divine son of God had possessed throughout eternity, um, but which he had, which had been almost uh, totally hidden from view since the time when he took on uh, a human nature, um, when he was conceived and born in, uh, conceived in his mother's womb and born in Bethlehem. That divine glory of, of the second person of the Godhead had been hidden from view, really, uh, almost all the time of his incarnation. Well, on this occasion, Moses and Elijah had been brought down from heaven to witness this partial unveiling of the Messiah's divine glory. And they had also been brought down, Moses and Elijah, to demonstrate by their presence on this occasion that Jesus himself, the one who is transfigured and who's, who is exhibiting divinity through uh, his glory shining forth, they came to demonstrate by their presence, and I'll explain that in a second, that Jesus was the fulfiller of all that the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets uh, had demanded of God's people down through the ages, and still demands, by the way. The law being represented by the presence of the great lawgiver, Moses, and the prophets being represented by one of the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, Elijah. And their presence there is God's way of saying, Jesus is the fulfiller of what they stand for. And also on this occasion, by the way, the Father, uh, whose voice is heard from the cloud, confirms through his words uh, on the mount that Jesus was, in fact, his beloved divine Son and was, in fact, the ultimate prophet of all prophets to whom God's children must carefully listen. And so now, Jesus and Peter and James and John are all on their way down from this uh, mountain. And it is during their descent from this mountain that the conversation recorded in verses 9 and following takes place. And so there are two things that we're going to uh, focus in on from this passage. First, we're going to discuss and look at the disciples' confusion regarding what I'm going to call the messianic timeline. And then we're going to discuss Jesus' clarification regarding the messianic timeline. First, the disciples' confusion regarding the messianic timeline. What I mean by messianic timeline, by the way, is the timeline of events having to do with the life and atoning uh, work of God's anointed, that is to say, the Messiah, whom we know Jesus of Nazareth to be. And who, by this point, uh, the disciples knew Jesus of Nazareth to be, particularly these three, because of what had just trans transpired. And as... Peter and James and John are descending with Jesus from the Mount, we're going to call it the Mount of Transfiguration. As they're descending, Jesus says something to them, perhaps in passing almost, I wasn't really in passing, but he says something to them, which causes the, his men to become confused about what 
prophesied events are supposed to happen when in Messiah's um, earthly life. Well, the statement that led to their confusion regarding the messianic timeline is found in verse 9. Jesus says to them, he commands them, in fact, um, tell the vision, and that's better translated what you have seen, tell what you have seen to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, he tells them, first of all, let's discuss for a moment why he tells them, uh, the probable reason, I should say, why he tells them to remain silent, to keep quiet about what they've just witnessed up on the the mountain. Uh, The probable reason that Jesus tells them to remain silent about that until after his resurrection is almost certainly that he, Jesus, did not want to fan the flames of public enthusiasm about him uh, as a potential deliverer of the Jewish people from their Roman oppressors. That was what uh, the messianic expectation of most Jews was in Jesus' day. And he does not want to, uh, by allowing the disciples to talk about what had just happened, to fan those flames uh, the, and those misguided expectations. Indeed, such misguided expectations among the Jewish people would only increase expectations regarding Jesus would only increase if they heard that the great prophet Moses and the great prophet Elijah had been sent by God from heaven to witness what happened up there on the mountain. And Jesus doesn't want this to happen. And so he tells them to keep quiet until after the resurrection. And when he tells them to remain silent, Peter, James, and John, about what they had just witnessed, he adds these words. After being, he says, be silent, tell what you have seen to no one, and he says, until the Son of Man, and they knew the Son of Man, it was a reference to himself, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. That's a caveat to what, to the commandment. And embedded in that caveat, of until uh, the Son of Man has risen from the dead, is an undeniable allusion to his impending death. Right? Now, the fact that death and resurrection from the dead are central to the fulfillment of Jesus' mission as the promised Messiah, that's something that the disciples had not yet really fully grasped at this point in time. They're, They're... They're gathering more and more about Jesus uh, and about who he is and understanding more and more, but this is still something they haven't really come to grips with yet. They know that Jesus is the glorious messianic figure, the the, the son of man uh, described in Daniel 7, uh, that he, Jesus is the fulfillment of that uh, prophecy, uh, a fact which is further confirmed by the transfiguration they've just witnessed. But they are perplexed as to why Jesus, the Messiah, (coughs) would ever have to die and, as a result of dying, be in need of being raised from the dead. They don't get that part, really. And their bewilderment is is evident uh, from what we read over in Mark's account of this event, over in Mark chapter 9, verse 10. I'll just read that uh, 
How shall I read verses 9 and 10 from Mark 9? Uh, and as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. And then it read, we read in verse 10, And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. What does he mean by that? And so they're like, what? Death? Rising from the dead? Messiah's? What's going on here? So they just didn't really fathom what Jesus was talking about. And so they're they're bothered by that. And Jesus' allusion to his future death also bothers them for another reason. And that is uh, because in their minds, Jesus, who they know to be the Messiah, his dying would leave key messianic prophecy unfulfilled as far as they're concerned. Remember, these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, had just seen Elijah on the mountain. Just seen him. Earlier that day, with Jesus up on the mountain, speaking to Jesus. And that sight of Elijah speaking to Jesus has now apparently caused them to wonder about Elijah's role. As the messianic, or as the Messiah's forerunner, which is what he was, preparing the way for the Lord, uh, and what is his role as the as the forerunner of Messiah? And that's prophesied in Malachi chapter four, verses five and six. Turn with me there. We're going to turn back to it a little while later, but I want to read it for the first time now. Malachi chapter four. This is the very last chapter of the Old Testament, by the way. The last two verses of the Old Testament, in fact. And we read there, Behold, this is God speaking, obviously, and he says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he, that is Elijah, will restore or turn, that word can be translated turn as well as restore, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. And so the disciples are trying to figure things out here, and their inability to understand how this prophecy in Malachi can be fulfilled if Jesus dies is why they ask the question that they ask in verse 10. So let's look at that question. So verse 10. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then, in other words, based on what you just said, Lord, you just talked about rising from the dead, that you were going to rise from the dead. Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he's referencing this Malachi prophecy that I just read to you. Well, by asking their question, why uh, why then do the scribes say, the Jewish scribes say that Elijah must come first? By asking this question, the disciples could be expressing one of two objections to what Jesus had just said in verse 9. Okay, there are two, basically two possibilities as to the meaning of their question, or the reason for their question. The first is this, they could be objecting to the chronology of events in Messiah's life, in the Messiah's life. 
if that's if chronology is the, their concern or their problem, what's puzzling them, if that's the case, then what they're saying to Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but they're saying something like this. How can you be the Messiah, Lord, if, as the scribes and, and the Old Testament prophecies that they were looking to tell us, how can you be the Messiah if uh, Elijah has to come first? He came already, right? He came up there on the mountain, but he has arrived after your coming, not before it. What gives there? Paraphrase. So that's one possible understanding of why they asked their question. But there's another one. And that is they could be objecting to what they see as a theological problem with this timetable. Uh, or with, with, uh, with what Jesus has just said, rather. And if that's the case, if it's, if it's a theological issue that's bugging them, then they're saying something like this. Lord, according to Malachi's prophecy, Elijah, when he comes, is supposed to prepare the way for the Messiah by restoring the hearts of God's people. If this is the case, then why would anyone want to put you, the one whom we now know to be the Messiah, why would they want to put you to death following such a widespread, we're going to call it a spiritual awakening, that Elijah is going to bring in. Why would people put you to death? Why would anyone have cause to put you, the Messiah, after all, Elijah's coming for you? Because of you. Why, why the death thing? So those are two possible ways of understanding their question. Before I go into Jesus' response, I want to make a few uh applications here. There's a few lessons that we can learn from the disciples' confusion about the meaning of uh, the Old Testament messianic uh, passages, uh, which is to say about Scripture. Um, And the most important lesson we can learn, I think, is that God's people are sometimes going to be confused about the meaning of Scripture, just the way these guys were. That's still true. And it's true for multiple reasons that we don't always get the proper understanding of some passage of Scripture, not the least of which is sin's remaining adverse effect on our powers of reasoning, even as God's children. We are not always going to understand God's Word, what He's telling us, correctly, because our mind is still affected by the fall and the effects of the fall. And that's true, by the way, in Reformed circles as well as broad, more broad evangelical circles. We don't always get it right. And we need to be okay with that. We need to be willing to go, I might not have all the answers. Or Mr. Kelvin might not have all the answers. Or Mr. Hodge. Or Mr. Dabney. Or Mr. Sproul. We can't be of the mindset that somebody's always got it right. There are going to be mistakes that we're going to make in our interpretation. Maybe maybe small ones. But we're still in sin. We don't have the promise of infallible uh, 
understanding of every scripture that we read. Now, let me say this before you run away with that. The fact that we aren't going to, we aren't always going to arrive at the correct answer, uh, the correct meaning rather, of something that God has said. And notice, we can arrive at the correct meaning much of the time, I'm not saying that, but the fact that we're not going to all the time doesn't mean we aren't supposed to try. We absolutely are. In fact, God expects us, he requires us to be theologians. He requires us to dig into his word and seek to, uh, by comparing scripture with scripture, come to proper theological conclusions about whatever doctrine it might be that uh, the, a passage we're looking at speaks on. We, uh, and we need to ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit, the uh, illumining, um, uh, the, the illumination of the Holy Spirit when we approach a text and say, Lord, I need your help to understand this. I ha- I'll, I'll confess this, by the way. This passage here was a doozy for me to unpack and to produce a sermon for today. And I was like, Lord, help me with this. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure where to go with this and what's going on. Thankfully with, thankfully, with the help of a few commentators and some insights I think the Lord gave me, um, I think I, I think, I hope, I have arrived at the right understanding of this passage. At any rate, you get my point. We need to ask God for help and insight into the meaning of any particular passage that we, especially the ones that are less uh, perspicuous, less clear. Well, whatever Peter, James, and John meant by their question, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Whatever they meant, whether it was a chronological dilemma or a theological dilemma, both the chronology problem and the theological problem were answered by Jesus in his reply to their question. And that's my second point, which comes from verses 11 and 12. Jesus' clarification regarding the messianic timeline. Jesus uh, makes it clear in his response here that the scribes were right about one thing and they were wrong about two things. Okay, so they're right about one thing, the scribes, and also, by the way, the disciples who were, who were uh, agreeing with the scribes' interpretation. And here's what they were right about. They were right in their belief that Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, was in fact teaching, and is teaching, that Elijah must come on the world stage before Messiah does. Jesus said, he answered them and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. In other words, he's, he's um, uh, paraphrasing what the, what the uh, Malachi prophecy was saying. Okay? And then he says, but I say to you that Elijah already came. But before we get to that, just notice, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. He's affirming that that scripture is correct uh, and that that... that, um, that uh, the, the timing issue that they're concerned about, that they're right about that. Elijah has to come. And it appears from Jesus' reply uh, that the scribes, and Peter, James, and John also, had rightly discerned from Malachi 4 that Elijah's job as the Messiah's forerunner would in fact be to bring about the restoration of the hearts of God's people. It appears that they underst- the scribes understood that and also that uh, his disciples, three disciples here did. 
But the scribes got some things wrong, and so too these men prior to this conversation. First thing they got wrong is the scribes and his disciples here failed to understand that the Elijah figure about whom Malachi wrote had already come and gone, by the way. And of course it was John the Baptist, as we learn from verse 13. And the disciples, after Jesus' comments in verses 11 and 12, finally figured out that's who he's talking about. He's talking about John the Baptist. And Jesus says, I'll read it, Elijah is coming and will restore all things, kind of paraphrasing that that Malachi uh, 4 passage or verse. But I say to you that Elijah already came, past tense, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. Now, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, I don't know, but I think some of you might be. Well, how could John the Baptist have been Elijah? Especially when John himself, at the front end of his public ministry, flatly denied when asked, are you Elijah? He said, no, I am not Elijah. I want to read something that... uh, James Montgomery Boyce wrote um, that I think was very helpful. And I'll read it to you to help explain kind of what's going on here. So just listen to this. It's about a paragraph long. Boyce says, A balanced understanding comes from taking the references together, meaning the various references regarding uh, from Jesus regarding Elijah and his coming. A balanced understanding comes from taking the references together. These three references are important. John 1, 21, which says, They asked him, Are you Elijah? He, John the Baptist, said, I am not. So that's one passage you have to keep in mind. The second one, um, a boy says, is Matthew eleven fourteen, And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. That's, that's uh, Matthew eleven fourteen. And then Luke 1.17, which says, he will go, meaning uh, the, uh, the figure that Malachi describes, he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then Boyce says this, the last verse, so that's the Luke one seventeen verse that I just quoted. The last verse, Boyce says, is a clear reference to Malachi 4, 5, and 6, but makes clear that John was to fulfill Elijah's role in his spirit and power, but not as a literal reincarnation of the prophet. When Jesus said that John was Elijah, if you are willing to accept it, he meant that John would fulfill Elijah's role. And I think that's a very wise um, um, and careful understanding of uh, how we are to deal with these questions about, wait a minute, what's going on here and how can this uh, not contradict that? So, 
First, the scribes and the disciples failed to understand um, that the Elijah figure uh, described by Malachi was John the Baptist and that he'd come and he'd gone by being killed. But they also failed to understand a second thing, and that was they failed to properly understand what Elijah had said about the Elijah figure's role as the restorer of all things in preparation for the Messiah's arrival. They didn't get what that restoring, uh, what the connection between the Elijah figure and this restoration uh, of which Malachi speaks, what's going on there? The scribes and the three disciples, they believed it was a restoration that Malachi's Elijah figure would automatically usher in as a result of his arrival on the scene. They figured it was an automatic thing. Elijah comes, and he does this, and poof, it's done. People's hearts, presumably the references to the God's uh, covenant people, the, the, the Jewish people at the time, that, that they, he would restore their hearts by his preaching or his, his, his presence. And that's what the assumption was on the part of the scribes and these three men. But that isn't exactly what Malachi's prophecy taught. Look with me again. Go back. Verse 5, chapter 4, Malachi. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers, or he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Note this. Lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Here, in this passage, God, through Malachi, is indicating that the Elijah figure, whom we know to be John the Baptist, would be a restorer of all things if the hearts of God's people would turn, in other words, from their sins. The fact is, we know from what Jesus says here, and also from what you read in the rest of the New Testament, the fact is the majority of God's Old Testament covenant people did not truly repent as a result of John the Baptist's preaching. And that's evidence from what, evident from what Jesus says there in this, in this very passage in verse 12. Jesus said, But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands, at the covenant people's, unfaithful covenant people's hands. And the fact that they did not repent explains why the Son of Man was going to die at their hands. The fact that the majority of them weren't affected by John the Baptist's ministry in a, in a uh, transformative way that transformed their hearts. And since Jesus is making it clear here that the work of Elijah, that the, the, he makes it clear here that the work of Elijah had already been accomplished by John the Baptist, 
the work of the Elijah figure, had already been accomplished by John the Baptist. And since also the majority of the Jewish people did not repent of their hard-heartedness toward God, as evidenced by what they did to Jesus, the only thing that they could reasonably, that is, the Jews could reasonably expect now from God was judgment. Specifically, a smiting of their land with a curse in accordance with Malachi 4.6 that I just read you a moment ago. And that prophecy was actually and visibly fulfilled in 70 AD by the Roman conquest and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the, and the scattering of the Jews across the uh, Roman world. Yes, Elijah was, came uh, to bring about the restoration of God's people, but it wasn't guaranteed, you see. And the prophecy itself makes the point. Lest, if they don't, I'm going to smite the land with a curse. And he did, because they didn't. A few things by way of application. First, for the Christian, for those of you here who are trusting in Jesus alone as your Savior and your Lord, and uh, you will trust him as both if you're truly converted. The Elijah, the, the disciples were relying, it appears, upon the scribes and their interpretations of the scriptures of the Messianic prophecies in Malachi, and they were relying on those interpretations given by the religious leaders above them. And the religious leaders got them mostly wrong. Now, this isn't an exhortation to you to ignore what I'm saying. (laughs) But it is a warning that you've got to do your homework. You need to be a Berean. And you need to think about what scripture, and you need to go to the scriptures and search the scriptures before you come to uh, any conclusion. Even if that conclusion that somebody else has espoused sounds really good. You need to carefully read and carefully draw conclusions from your Bible. The Bible, I should say. Before you come to some conclusion as a conviction lest we fall into the trap that the apostles, uh, excuse me, these three disciples did on this and other occasions too, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say. But this passage also reminds us of something else, and that is that God demands that people turn from their sins, that they are be restored is how the... Uh, the uh, the text says in Malachi and uh, the, the translation of the New American Standard, but turn is just as legitimate a translation of that um, Hebrew word. And God demands that men, all kinds of men, and by men I'm not here talking about gender, I'm talking about uh, uh, men, women, and children, demands that we turn from our sins and turn to him. And if we don't do this, if you are here today and you haven't done this, that you haven't 
turned to Christ and understood He alone can save you, pled with Him to do just that, or trust Him to do just that, and you're trusting Him not only to get you uh, out of hell, but also to be the Lord of your life, the one who you serve as, uh, as a servant with Him as your master. If you don't, haven't done that, and do not do that before you reach the end of your days here upon the earth, uh, then he will smite you with a curse too. And that's the curse of eternal damnation uh, in hell, which is the place where God's justice is poured out forever. And we all, myself, all of us here, there isn't a person alive that doesn't deserve just that. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all rebelled against him. We've all been idolaters of self. We have all uh, turned uh, and done our own thing, gone our own way, as Isaiah puts it in his prophecy. But we, uh, so we all deserve God's wrath. But for those of us who put our trust in Jesus Christ alone to reconcile us to God, to gain his forgiveness of our sins, this life here on earth is as close to hell as we will ever get. But you must flee to Christ before you take your last breath. There is no second chance. And you need Jesus, and he alone can cover your sins from God's sight. He alone can save you from the hell that you deserve. And yes, all the rest of us do too, including those of us who are Christians. But you will get it if you don't turn to Jesus. So if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ savingly as your only hope of being forgiven, not your baptism, your good works, your church membership, uh, your being nice to your kids, whatever, but trusting in Jesus alone, the Jesus who was and is the divine Son and fleshed, who's the only mediator between God and men, you need to today. And this is, that's all you need to hear in this message. If you're here and that describes you. May God give you the grace to do it. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Christ's name. We thank you that there is grace, that you are a God of grace, and that that grace is supremely evident in the sending of your Son uh, to be uh, the Redeemer of those who will flee to him as their only hope of forgiveness from you. Thank you, Jesus, that you were willing, because out of your love for your people, that you were willing to come and assume that role and bear that awful load and, and quench that infinite debt that we owed to your justice. Lord, we pray, I pray, that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you truly, savingly, would you please have mercy on his soul? Open his or her eyes. Have mercy they might flee to Christ. And for the rest of us, Lord, we pray that you would use this passage as a reminder of our need to be uh, the very best theologians we can be as we approach your word and that we would hunger for your word. We pray for that, a greater hunger for it. And then, Lord, when we approach your word, that we would do so with great care uh, and with great um, uh, concern for bringing out the meaning of every text in light of every other text. Um, Would you please make us ever-increasingly better uh, students 
of your word and understanders of your word. We all lack understanding somewhere. We've all uh, got places where we um, are not quite getting your meaning properly. Would you please continue to illumine our minds and allow us to be better and better understanders of what you have written to us in this your love letter. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.